Tuesday, August 21st, 2018. Time for episode... <laughs> what are we up to? 59? 59. You know, I'm going to leave this in. Yeah, okay, this is partly... Um, I've been just uh, deprived of sleep of late, uh, but that's that's good. That means that we have more days with Tiny Princess, and um, I can never complain about uh, being short shortchanged on sleep because it just means we have more days to cuddle and, and uh, have her. But yes, this is episode 59 of the Barnhard podcast, unless I'm making a mistake, in which case I'll correct it in the show notes. Indeed. And uh, as you can tell from the intro music, even though it's Tuesday, we're doing a financial Friday. And this is a topic that, like several of the last shows... It's kind of an ask Anne, but this was something I asked Anne. I, I was listening to a podcast with Peter Schiff being interviewed by Joe Rogan, and Joe Rogan asked him a very direct question that Peter Schiff never answered. And so Anne said, oh, you should ask me that one, which I will do. But first, I, I want to ask or answer an email that um, actually, no, it's a, it's a letter mail. Somebody sent something into the P.O. box and um, mentioned uh, seeing on my Twitter account something about my, fi- my difficulty obtaining a manual transmission car. And that is... Uh, RJ in SoCal, or is it LoCal? I'm not entirely sure. It depends upon which part of the state you're in, which one that is. No, that was making reference to, I used to have a uh, manual transmission Nissan Altima, and I loved that car because it, it, it I, I could drive it like a V6, even though it only had four cylinders, because I had precise control of it. And I remember, Ann, you blogged once upon a time about your Camaro? Um Mustang, I forget what exactly you had, but it was a. You said it was a Transams, hot ride. Trans Ams. Okay, yeah, I, I knew it was a, an American muscle car. I just couldn't remember which one it was. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so now I drive a, a pretty boring commuter automatic transmission car, which is great because the only time I drive it is to and from work, which is frequently stop and go traffic with uh, traffic jams and and um, the commute. So it would be kind of annoying to have a, a manual transmission in those cases. So I think that's where um, RJ caught my, my comment on Twitter as, as I was complaining about um, the traffic, which is, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm employed. What, how, why should I be complaining? Well, I think it's getting harder and harder. I think it's, in fact, I think it's getting harder to harder to and harder and harder to even get a, a sports car with a stick um, that, you know, like the Corvettes and, and stuff like that. They have the, what do they call it? You know, the paddle shifting, the, the paddle shifting. So it's not, you're not, there's no clutch. You're not working the clutch. You're just tap, 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 you know, shift, shift, shift. And then, you know, left hand is down, down, down or whatever. Um, I, I think you almost have to know somebody at the dealership or custom order even um, a car these days to get a stick in it. And I think more and more there's a lot of, there are a lot of cars that just simply aren't available. It just isn't an available option anymore, which is pretty remarkable, pretty remarkable. But I'll, I have to confess that um, my sports cars were all were in fact all automatics. And I did it because I started researching the relative resale values um, of automatics versus sticks. And what I realized is that if you had a stick, you were basically disqualifying from the resale market women or a car that would want to be shared between a man and a woman because most American women today cannot drive a stick and refuse to do it. 
And so the, the resale value spread on automatic versus stick was so severe that I always went ahead and just had automatics. There was a news in the story recently, other way around, a story in the news recently. I told you I need some more sleep. Uh, about a, a pretty sophisticated group of car thieves. They they cra- they they um, broke into this car that had a really good security system, managed to get the engine started, and then realized it was a stick shift and abandoned it. And this was a yep. pretty high-end crew that had been stealing, you know, the, the paddle shifters and whatnot, which technically speaking, I'm okay, I'm not a car nut. I've just watched Top Gear. And my understanding is that the, the paddle shifters are a form of automatic double clutch uh, manual transmission. And if that actually makes sense to car people, it's I got that right by accident. But uh, the my understanding is the the yes it is ha- getting much harder to find manual transmission cars. Uh, it, it's it's almost getting to be a specialty item. It'd probably be easier to find slap shift uh, shifters that are I think yeah, those yeah. are those I are racing type shifters. That. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, most of the um, the luxury sport cars. I would always I would always have two cars. I would have a a super hot sports car, and then I would have a like a luxury performance. And all of those cars that I had had that that thing. Uh, what, what, what do you call it when you have the automatic, but you can slap the automatic over to the left, and then it's the Tiptronic, you know, up, 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 down, 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 which I never used. I never used that. I don't think anybody uses that. Um, but that sounds I like think- a Bruce Jenner transmission. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, do I even want to hear the punchline to this? Go ahead. No, no, no. It, a trans training? I don't know. No. <laughs> Make up your mind. Make up your mind. Um, no, you are what you are. You are an automatic. Um, but that was that was the thing that was the jam at least it was 10 years ago um and i assume they're probably still making them like that but again i don't even i haven't messed with cars now in so long and thank god for it and don't don't really care to to be messing with cars again not at this point not if i don't have to well four Too years expensive i was going to say four years ago when i was about to buy a new honda at the time the the um, the Hondas were what they call continuous variable transmission in mm. the four cylinder model. But then, if you got the more powerful V six, then they went to the the more traditional um, what uh, automatic transmission, where it's actually yeah. four or five gears. And the the CVT or continu- continuous variable transmission, it is simultaneously lame and cool all at the same time. Um, I guess it's kind of neat in the sense that you can slam down your the, the right pedal and the the revs will go way up but but uh, it's constantly adjusting that gearing ratio so you can take off quickly i don't know this isn't meant to be the the car show it's actually i, I just wanted to get that that um that comment from jr and i apologize that i said rj a couple of times it's jr somewhere in socal who sent in that and uh, I, I will send a proper um postal letter back to you as well uh, thank you for sending something tangible through the mail um so I mentioned that this show was all about, I, I heard a question uh, that was posed by Joe Rogan on his podcast to Peter Schiff. Uh, if Donald Trump were to call you and say, what do I do to set the economy straight? What do I do? And he never actually answered the question. So in the conversations you and I were having, I changed the, the, the scenario a slight bit. Assuming that people come to their senses and appoint me emperor of North America. And I have no interest in the financial stuff, so I will appoint you the SAR or Sarina of, of all the thing, all things financial. And what would you do to fix the financial markets, top to bottom, front to back? 
Well, I mean, it's it's maddening to me that someone like Schiff wouldn't answer this question directly because this is something that you could just go on and on and on and on hours and hours and hours. there's so many directions that this can go because there's so much that needs to be done and seriously Schiff can't can't even riff for you know five five seven minutes on on such a loaded question with I got so the distinct impression he, I got the distinct impression he did not want to be on the record with an answer yeah, exactly. And why? Why wouldn't you? As as if you, Peter Schiff, are ever going to ever have any elected power. I mean, come on. Come on. Um, maybe maybe for folks who have never heard of Peter the Schiff, maybe you should answer uh, a basic question people might be asking. Who is this character? Um, well, he's, he's the son of a famous tax protester who died a few years ago. Now he's a radio host, but also, I believe, also has had a quote-unquote hedge fund or an investment firm for quite some time as well. Um, it's funny. I appeared on Shift Show in probably, yeah, it was, it was either late 2011 or early 2012. Did you ever find that clip? Were you able to? I did, yes. Well, maybe we, if if that's linkable somehow, we should link to it. Um, and we were, I was on Shift Show in the context of um, the MF Global debacle and all of that. And I think I might be the only person who has ever left this guy, Peter Schiff, just stuttering, stammering, unable, didn't know what to say, and then cut me off. Um, specifically he asked me what should happen to John Corzine. And I said, well, you know, the, the, you steal $1.6 billion. And I think that this is a capital crime and execution should be on the table. And he, he just, he was just stuttering. He had nothing to say. And then he, uh, well, I, I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't think that, uh, you know, we should make, uh, financial crimes, executable offenses, and then cut me off. And that was the end of the, that was the end of the interview. But, um, it was up for years and years and super nerd is the link that you found. Did it include the video or was it just the audio? Yes, it was the video. I'll have to find that again. Oh, nice. Yeah, because the video is what makes it. I mean, the audio is good, but the video was just spectacular. And I, it was up for a long time. It was it was a, ava- widely available on the Internet, on YouTube for a long time. And then it went away because um, I tried to look it up, I don't know, a year or so ago, and it was gone. Uh, but I'm glad you found it again with your, with your magic methods. Um, so we'll have to definitely post a link to that. I just found um, it again. I, it's, it's not magic. It's just knowing how to use, you know, Google things with Bing. Yeah, I know. I, I, I'm kind of helpless though. If it's not on YouTube, I don't know how to find stuff that's not, I don't know how to find video stuff that isn't on YouTube. I really struggle with that. Um, I guess you're right. Just use Bing. Um, so that's who Peter Schiff is, but he holds himself out as being, you know, economic guru and Mr. Hedge Fund and all of this. And uh, to get asked such a such a open ended question that you could just go on and on forever and being such a such a coward 
that you you don't want to answer this question because why it might um, it might potentially jeopardize you being you being named secretary of the treasury by Donald Trump or something like that. I mean, th- that isn't even that's just ridiculous. And if you have any integrity, why wouldn't you want to answer that question and say, well, now that you bring it up um, now, Super Nerd and I there we did a chat. We were chit chatting online and I have since deleted that chat. So do you have that chat in front of you with all of the with all of the <laughs> dozen, dozen and a half things, because I don't, I don't want to forget anything. I mean, I want to kind of touch on everything very quickly if I possibly can. Um, um, why don't you start talking, and I'll see if I can find it. And I mentioned that I just found uh, the link uh, on Google, and the the link I clicked on is already gone. So I'm hoping I actually downloaded that, and I'll figure out how to put it back up. So. Okay. Even though I just said I found the link, um, I may not have found a link. So we'll, mm. we'll, I'll keep looking for the Peter Schiff thing, and, and I'll post it on the show notes. Okay. So Magic Wand, you can do whatever you want to do to um, straighten out the economy. I mean, wh- where do we even start? So I think, you know, there would be a great hue and cry if one didn't start by saying that obviously the Federal Reserve – has got to go. It's got to be abolished. I think there's a great fallacy, a great misconception um, out there in the world today that people believe that there has to be, a, you know, a Federal Reserve Bank. There has to be a central bank. Every nation has to have this, even these, you know, now these supranational structures like the European Union, that all has to have its own, um, its own, central central bank and all of this it it really doesn't you know wor- the world got along just fine for quite a long time without these structures of this this central bank and we have to get back to that and it also kind of speaks to subsidiarity of you know the reducing of power um getting things back down to a more local level. One of the primary ways of doing that is abolishing central banks, federal reserve, and then wildly, wildly, wildly walking back, changing, reforming in the true sense, the entire banking system itself, um, doing things like, um, banning branch banking, Um, I've been going off about this for years. You could do so much if you could, if you would just say no more branch banks, you can only have one physical location, one and no, you know, none of these mega banks, no Citibank, no bank of America, nothing like that. All there can be is single location banks. Okay. So from the consumer perspective, that certainly would be a lot less convenient. Would you also then say that you're not allowed as a consumer or even as a business to do online banking? Well, that's, that is an interesting question. Um, that, yeah, we're going to have to figure that out because stuff has gone so incredibly digital now, and we're going to have to rethink, um, about the 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 digitization of money 
even if you've got money backing it in a bank somewhere, yes, precisely in order to avoid having um, these massive, massive, massive banking structures and to get it back down more to a to a decentralized local level, there is going to have to be some rethinking of this. And w- will we have to sacrifice uh, this this teeny tiny little thing, relatively speaking? I mean, think about how, just how how few years it's been since this massive digitization. I can remember very easily. Um, I, I can't remember exactly the last time, but everyone out there who's you know older than probably thirty five years old can probably remember using a credit card with the, you know, the little rolly machine where they would put the piece of paper, the triplicate carbon paper in the, in the little credit card thing and then clack, clack, run the, run the machine over your credit card and it would copy your, um, your credit card number and so forth onto this, this carbon paper physical receipt. Um, yeah, I remember back when I was short. I remember seeing that done. Yeah, it's uh, it hasn't been too terribly long. I remember, I could remember in my adult life when going going into a department store or something like that, and having them say our compute our telephones are down, our computer network is down, and having them do the click clack thing with the with the credit card. Um, so that's that's in my adult life. So that's got to be within the last. 15, 20 years, probably closer to 15. It's probably in the, in the two thousands sometime. Um, yes, we are going to have to give up a lot of these things just for the sake of protecting against these mega structures, which this launches into a conversation about, um, a, a, a tangent about cryptocurrencies because as, as everybody knows who's listened to our cryptocurrency shows, this is a paradigm that is completely, totally, obviously dependent upon the internet, electronic transmissions, so on and so forth. Um, I think that's going in the wrong direction. In order to get things de- decentralized and deconcentrated and back into a, a paradigm of subsidiarity where these things are under local control. And think about it. You want to have, you know, a, a local, um, you want your banking systems to be local so that if there is any shenanigans, that you know who to go after. And if you think about it, you see that the the criminality that goes on today in the financial system, in the banking system, it's it's almost like the Stalin principle in the sense that, you know, Stalin said killing one person is murder. Killing a million people is a statistic that has now been mapped onto the financial industry and the banking paradigm in that, you know, it's people generally consider somebody walking into a a service station and stealing 20 bucks out of the cash register to be a greater crime than than what is going on on these massive levels with these huge investment banks and brokerage firms and the Federal Reserve itself with with its policy 
of, you know, this lie that that this central bank is told that you need to be targeting 2% inflation per year and that that, that's a healthy economy and everybody is just nodding and say, oh, well, they've all all gone to college and they have college degrees in economics. So if they say that 2% inflation is what we need, uh, you know, and all these rich, powerful guys say that, then I guess we just need to go along with that. It's been a criminal paradigm of basically sucking everyone's capacity to save out of the economy. And so you get people who get to retirement and are indeed completely financially dependent upon the state. People that are completely financially dependent upon getting um, Social Security, Medicaid, et cetera, et cetera, um, because, or Medicare, because they basically the capacity to save over the the working man's life is just being inflated away by this policy from the central bank. And when it, when you're talking about billions and billions, and if you talk about the federal reserve on a scale that big, you're talking ultimately about trillions of dollars. And clearly that's what we're talking about when we're talking about all of this debt creation and so forth. You're talking about sums of money that are so enormous, and this this goes back to where, what we opened with with Schiff and how I brought up, um, you know, execution in terms of um, in terms of capital punishment, in terms of John Corzine who stole one point six billion dollars. Well, people people um, wince at that. But then if you sit and think about it, wait a minute, if you look at proportionality, look at what we do to a person who goes in and steals 20 bucks from from a liquor store or a convenience store and then map that proportionally onto these massive financial crimes, these massive acts of theft. And people people look at that, and it, I think deep down, subconsciously, people have to realize, look, you have to make a choice here. Either we're going to say these massive financial crimes are, are just no big deal, or we have to acknowledge that they are, in fact, capital offenses. And the paradigm that I put forth years ago in the wake of MF Global and John Corzine is what I would do if I were... Um, you know, Holy Roman Emperor, or as as uh, super nerd is characterized. Okay, super nerd is king of the world, and I'm the financial Zarina or whatever. What I would be looking at is let's establish what the average annual income is. Let's look at what the average man's working life is, which is considered to be 45 years and has been for quite some time now, you know, working basically from age 20 to age 65 or from age 25 to age 70. So you got 45 years of working life, multiply 45 by the average annual income. And if you commit a, uh, an, uh, an act of theft or, or financial malfeasance of any sort that is greater then annual average income times 45, what you've essentially done is in stealing that quantity of money, you have stolen one man's entire working life. And now going back to my theory of money, that money is a fungible proxy for man's capacity to labor, produce, and create through time. 
so w- what we're talking about is money is a fungible proxy for human life and human effort. Um, if you if you have stolen a quantity of money that is greater than a working man's life at the annual average average income rate, you have you have effectively forfeited your own life because you've stolen the equivalent of one other human life. And I think that's the metric you use, and that's the line that you use. Um, judging what what are we going to do here in terms of meeting out a proportional punishment for this? Um, the, the only this counterbalance is, I ahead. would the only counterbalance I, w- I would offer as emperor, and as some people you know would point out by email, you know. A woman is supposed to work for a man, um, so we'll keep that moral order in, in, in place. But you know, tongue in cheek, firmly. But, uh-huh. but the yeah, yeah, I, I didn't think that would go over very well. <laughs> but uh, the, the point being is that, is that I would I would say before actually sentencing somebody to death for that, I think you would need to show actual malice. And, and in crimes like this, I don't think it would be very difficult. It's it's similar to. Uh, I've I've said that anybody who defrauds the Medicare system, for example, is committing a crime against the entire body politic and ought, mm-hmm. ought to pay for it accordingly. So in, in anything where you are effectively making a crime that is, to use your term, equivalent to taking an entire man's or person's, if you want to put it that way, human being's capacity to earn labor and earn no, throughout let's, their let's lifetime. Use man, let's go old school and not not succumb to the to the zeitgeist. Let's no, well, use the old, old school term and call to be, it a to man's be linguistically life. precise. Man in English is equivalent to saying human being or homo in in Latin. So at That's least right. in Latin, you, when you say homo hominis, you're referring to something that refers to the species as opposed to vir or or mulier. So, mm-hmm. you know, in, in English, man could be the species or it could be the male. So that's mm-hmm. why I was being slightly more precise about this. The point is, if you, if you steal the capacity of one human being's uh, capacity to earn in, in their entire lifetime, yes, yeah, I think you should probably pay for that with your life, um, barring whatever circumstantial uh, mitigations may be in play at that point. But anyway, sorry to get and you this off track. Is, and this is why we have judges. I mean, this is another thing that, that people nowadays are are – are forgetting and forgetting very quickly is that precisely the the reason that you do have these people in your community called judges is because yes, at some point somebody or a, a panel of three or whatever it is, some people need to sit, look at, look at the circumstances of a given situation and then adjudicate and make that judgment call. That's why judges used to be so respected in the community. I mean, the judge was, the town judge was just about the most respected guy in town, even more respected, I would say, than, than the mayor of a town. The judge was, this is a person who, who the community has come together and said, we want this man who we deem to be of above average intelligence, of above average character and morality. And I mean, we just, we're so cynical now. We just, we just scoff at something like that, you know. We deem this person because of education and superior and above average morality or even superior morality, you could say. We are comfortable as this community having this man sit in judgment so that when questions like this come up, that there is a human factor in there looking at any mitigating circumstances, et cetera, et cetera. 
and making sure that justice is applied and that it's applied proportionately and with common sense and even to some extent, certainly, certainly with mercy as well. But there has to be truth and there has to be justice. And then, yes, we're saying we're going to give this man or these these men in our community this responsibility to do this. And again, people are just totally losing this and forgetting this, that, you know, we're so cynical that all lawyers are considered to be complete shyster criminals. Um, everyone, anyone involved in politics, anyone in, involved in any sort of governance so much credibility has been lost. It's going to take a lot. It's going to take a lot to reboot civilization and actually, first and foremost, start producing people who are actually capable of being judges. You have to get there are still some around. I mean, you you can you can still if you're if you live in a small enough town or a small enough city, um, you can still rattle off the names of the judges and you, you know who the judges are and, and they do tend to carry still some prestige in the community and so forth. But that's just, that's so being lost. But yeah, that, that's one of the purposes of the judiciary is to mete out justice proportionately and make sure that, that laws are not applied in a, in such a rigid way that there's absolutely no room for determining whether or not there's any nuance in a given situation. Certainly. There, there used to be the saying, or actually it's, it's not that long ago that uh, com- contrasting and comparing the American condition versus the Roman empire and in the Roman empire, there were few laws, but wise judges to interpret and apply justice. Whereas right. in the United States, we have more laws than we can count and complete idiots for judges. But it doesn't matter because all the all, all the sentences are, are statutorily required. So yeah. you know, all, all the people who are, are you know, pro-drug, you know, whatever the term is, moderation, liberation, whatever, they do mm. have a bit of a point that if you get caught on a nonviolent marijuana charge three or four times, okay, yeah, you're, you're a dumbass if you're smoking dope, first off. But, yep. sec- but I don't think if you're caught three times, you, you should go to jail for life. The the, man, the 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 statutory mandatory sentences it's kind of stupid you should be treated you know with with a little bit of common sense i mean if you're the town drunk and you're kind of harmless you know go sleep it off and then go about your way the next day if you're the town drunk and you decide to get behind a car and kill somebody that's a different mm-hmm. circumstance and a wise judge can take that into consideration so yeah. I mean, it's, it reminds me you say that it reminds me of Otis Campbell on the Andy Griffith show who would, who was the town drunk and Andy Griffith was also the justice of the peace on the Andy Griffith show. Of course he was respected and so forth. And the Otis, the town drunk had the keys to the jail and he would, he would come in and let himself in. And you know, it, it, that, but that was the kind of mindset back then. And then the other point I was going to make what was the other point I was going to make? It was really good, too. What, what did you just say, Super Nerd? So back to the idea of three strikes and you're out for the death penalty or life in prison for pot. Yeah, I mean, that just that tangentially touches on this whole business about um, about the death penalty that we've been talking about because of anti-Pope Bergoglio and all of this. Um, I was sent a, a very, very good email by, I think it was a lawyer, believe it or not. <laughs> Again, I, I have that cynicism against lawyers that everyone does. There are still awesome lawyers in the world, I will admit. There, yes, there are still awesome, good lawyers in the world. Although my contribution to society was not becoming a lawyer, but that's just me. Indeed, indeed. Me too, me too. 
so his point was, um, you have to have execution and you have to have a death penalty because for example, when you have situations like what we have out in California, where they have that three strikes and you're out deal, um, if there is no death penalty, then there is absolutely no reason, none whatsoever, why someone who hasn't, you know, had their quote unquote three strikes in the state of California won't go ahead and kill the witness, won't go ahead and just murder right and left as soon as they get into prison. Um, if there's no if there's absolutely no consequence beyond life in prison and you've already maxed out like in the California system and you know that you, okay, you have a life sentence built in. There's nothing more for them to take away from you. They can't, they're not going to put you in solitary confinement for the rest of your life because you know, all the people have, you know, put up a, a, a screeching, a screeching cacophony whenever they try to do that. There's, there's just nothing more that, that can be done. You know, you cannot be executed because the state does not permit it. The church does, but the state doesn't. Um, then there is, there's no, there's no break. There's no moral break. And so if you are just doing a, a simple theft or something like that, you will be more likely to kill, um, kill the person you've tied up, kill the eyewitness. And then obviously, like I said, once you're in prison, there's absolutely no reason why you shouldn't just be, be murdering everyone around you. Because again, there's nothing more they, that they can do to you. So in, in a slight tangent there on, on the last uh, podcast, we did talk about, um, the junior Bishop and white talking about the death penalty and whatnot. I, I put a, a set of links in the show notes, two sermons that were awesome about, you know, saints like St. Joseph Cafaso. And I forget the other one who was called the, the patron of the, of, of the gallows basically who had a perfect record of converting people who were sentenced to death. And, mm -hmm. and just think about this morally speaking. I mean, the most important thing we're all going to do is die. And whether we die in the state of grace or the, or the state of sin is the story of our eternity. And mm -hmm. so to a certain extent, when you are sentenced to death, you have the grace of knowing when you're going to die and oh, how many it's days you got, mercy. you know yeah. exactly when it's going to happen and you have the motivation to get your affairs in order. And uh, another link I put in there was, was, uh, the podcast that Matt Walsh did, um, a couple of days or one day after, you know, the Francis thing came out and he made the point that what, what, uh, Bergoglio said is that in light of our understanding of the dignity of man, we should not have the death penalty. And and Walsh makes the awesome point of, oh, so it's more dignified to a human being to stick them in a cage for the rest of their natural life and to, and to descend into insanity? Mm-hmm. And I mean, and that's, it's, it's such a lie because the death penalty speaks exactly to the, dig, to the dignity of man, that man is not an animal, that man is a rational intellect who is responsible for his choices and is not just an animal that you stick in a cage when it doesn't behave or medicate when it doesn't behave. It is precisely because man has that dignity and is made in the image of image and likeness of God that when he does something, when he commits a crime that is that grievous and that severe, that 
he he is held to account for what he has done. Um, we don't we don't do that with animals. I mean, sometimes we put animals down, but it, it it's it's not because they're being held morally responsible for anything. So holding people responsible with uh, up to and including the forfeiture of their own lives in honoring of their human dignity and their capacity to make their own decisions. This is also why we don't we don't execute the the legitimately insane because if your brain isn't functioning right and you actually aren't responsible for what you have done and you have lost that that capacity because of a physical malfunction in your brain then certainly you don't you don't put such a person to death you put them in an insane asylum for the rest of their life and protect the rest of society from them but no you can't you can't execute someone who is physically because of mental illness not responsible for what they've done. So attempting to detangent, we were talking about John Corzine stealing billions of dollars and he ought to be hanging from the end of a rope as a result of it. Yeah, so circling back to Schiff and and what you do, steps you can take to fix the economy, the overarching point of this whole segment of the, of the podcast is you have to reinstate massive penalties up to and including execution for theft, corruption, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's just making that point in a, in a long roundabout way. And we could continue to talk about this, but we should kind of move on now. You did have a point in your notes about the minimum wage. The minimum wage should be abolished, abolish the minimum wage and let, let wages let the market shake out. And if people want, if, if the market and human beings, which are the market, if they decide that they want to go get a job and get paid $2 and 75 cents an hour with today's buying power, if there's a market there, let that market emerge. Um, that's, that's an interesting, a really interesting question. And people talk about, you know, my gosh, there's these people in these third world countries and they're working for pennies, pennies an hour or dollars a day or whatever, whatever it is. And this is so awful. This is so terrible. Like the example would be, you know, guys picking bananas somewhere. Well, here's the interesting thing about that. You've got an economy, you've got a market, you have you have a labor force. They show up at the plantation for the job picking the bananas. They voluntarily agree to take X wage. And if they don't take X wage, there's a line of guys standing behind them that are willing to step up and take X wage. And so they get paid that. And then the economy shakes out um, commensurate with that. So they are able to support their families, et cetera, et cetera. Now, are they, are they, and this is the problem with modern America, so materialistic, so materialistic, everything revolves around well, he, he, he's not living in a $400,000 house with granite countertops and, you know, everybody has their own car and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. No, but you know what? His marriage is intact. He's happy. He goes home. He sees his children. The children are happy. They're outside playing. Um, you know, the notion that, that everything 
has to be judged by the standards of modern American materialism. Um, this, this is just wrong. And again, this is something that's going to have to be completely walked back, unwound, et cetera, et cetera, is, you know, understanding what the, what the true end of man is, what the supernatural ends of man are. And if you start from that true premise of what the supernatural end of man is, then you can have a much more healthy understanding of, believe it or not, economics, because you can let economies shake out and you're not demanding these completely unrealistic, unattainable, impossible material standards, um, you know, of what poverty is and what poverty isn't. Okay. The guy who's making $2 a day, but he's supporting his family on that in whatever, you know, Caribbean Island or whatever it is. And the families are, are in the church practicing their faith die in the state of grace and achieve the beatific vision. Who's better off the, the guy who's making $2 a day with his family or modern, modern Americans, the vast majority of which live in absolute material decadence, but end up in hell for all eternity. And you know, people are going to listen to this and say, well, here she goes again. And they can't, they talk, can't talk about it, anything else. Well, yeah, you're, that's right. It's really difficult to talk about anything else when the stakes are eternal, eternal, either eternal beatitude or eternal damnation and how that works back and trickles back into economic concepts. And all you need to, all you need do is look at anti-Pope Bergoglio, who has no supernatural faith whatsoever, who is a complete materialist, who is a confessing Marxist, quasi-communist, um, you know, he's technically Peronist fascist, but it's all a subset of, you know, Marxist humanistic materialism, Zero supernatural faith whatsoever, and look what you get out of that. And at look some what point, you get at, out of that. at some point, I think we need to unpack that string of adjectives you just said because Peronist fascist. I think that probably goes over, not fascist, fascist. Uh, <laughs> that probably goes over the heads of a lot of people. Um, but I don't want to get you off off topic right now completely. I mean, to to your point, who's really got it worse in the long run? The the exactly the, the person yep. who has the the rough life. Uh, in, in, in a, a society of, of low means who dies at the age of 37 but dies in the state of grace versus somebody who dies at 90 who has had 70 years worth of sinning to rack up. Yep. They're, they're, and they're, it, they're and plumbing, ends up in hell for all of eternity. They're, they're plumbing yeah. depths of hell to, to the to degree that Dante didn't, didn't uh, imagine. Yeah, exactly. Um, and again, this is, this is going to be so difficult, um, barring supernatural intervention, for the American Freemasonic, um, you know, godless capitalist, godless capitalist. Because, I mean, again, look at what I was talking about. I was talking about a market, a labor market being allowed the total freedom to shake itself out and for, for hourly wages, for menial work to go as low as they need to go. If you allow that to happen, if you abolish a minimum wage, then what what you'll find you'll have is you will, in fact, have lower prices and you will have near 
100% employment because, you know, people will just be willing to go and and fill in the, you know, the gaps and spaces and bubbles that are in the labor market and the economy will function much, much better. And of course, it, it just goes without saying. I mean, it's it, it's a testament to how sin makes people stupid and darkens the intellect that you have these these horribly, horribly sinful, atheistic people just mired in all, all manner of sexual sin, obviously, especially on the East and West Coast, who go towards this, frankly, communist mindset, who have done things like in California and I don't know where else they've done it, Seattle or whatever, where they imposed whatever it was, a $15 an hour minimum wage. Hey, don't forget Chicago. Um, and, yep, also, also. Okay, how, how can you not just instantaneously see that if you do something like that, that you're a going to put everybody, you're going to put everybody out of business. You're going to drive people into um, automation and technological substitutes for human labor at a at a vastly accelerated pace relative to what it should be. And, and if and you I, question it, that, by the way, go execute the Big Mac maneuver locally where you are. McDonald's is rolling out kiosks where there are no humans involved from when you place an order till you pick up the order. That's the result of driving the minimum wage too high. Of course. Why do you, why do you think they're doing that? Why do you think all of these supermarkets, all of these people are scrambling to get these automated kiosk things up and running. It's because they see this coming. They see what's been going on on the left coast and so and in Chicago and, and all these other places. And they're saying, we have to get out ahead of this. We have to eliminate these low-end menial jobs because we will be destroyed by this as soon as they implement the $15 minimum wage in, in in a, in a more geographically broad area, oh, we're done. This will destroy us. We have to get out ahead of this preemptively. But then, again, darkening of the intellect, how can people not see and understand that if you synthetically hike up um, wages like this, the only thing that you're going to achieve is you're good is you're going to synthetically inflate cause the price inflation of all of the other um you know base core commodities food things like that if suddenly everyone across the board has you know this much more money or this is also the same argument with um universal guaranteed income or whatever they're calling it. Universal okay. basic income. Universal basic income. Okay. State just gives everybody X number of dollars per month or euros per month or whatever rubles or whatever it is. Well, Everyone, they, can, they can do that, but they can never annul the law that a fool and his money will always be separated. Indeed. Indeed. But then what happens is that when, all these people have this money, the price of the core commodities just goes up. And so the relative buying power of the people at the bottom that you're quote unquote altruistically trying to help, not only does it not do them any good at all, it's probably going to be worse because the, the price inflation will probably be more than if you just leave things alone. I mean, there's a there's a great example of this over in Europe that that people 
tour, just normal tourists, I've been told, can experience this. You go to Italy. In the north of Italy, in Venice, in Milan, every, prices are much, 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 much higher because people are wealthier up there. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a different country, basically. Much stronger economy, but everyone's on the euro. In, uh, obviously, not just in all of Italy, but in all of Europe. Go down into the south of Italy where the economy is much, much, much weaker down where Naples is and even south of Naples down in there. And if you can even then get out of the city, but you don't even have to the average, an average, if you go have a plate of pasta in Venice, that's going to be about, I don't know, 12, 13, 14 euro. Whereas you can go down into the South of Italy and you can get a plate of pasta for four euro, or you can get a pizza for three euro, which is just unheard of. Same country, same euro, but even within that, even within that, the economy is shaking out so that prices, consumer prices, will match in a certain sense the 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 available money, the wealth of the people in that physical in that physical area they i mean you look at something like that that's within the same country and they're all and it's all on the euro and then you start thinking about the fat the insanity in europe that you have you know finland and germany on the same euro and spain and greece well yeah spain greece portugal italy all of these completely weak economies are trading and business is trying to be done on exactly the same currency as Germany, Finland, all of these northern strong France strong economies. This is this is crazy. You should be able you should have separate currencies obviously by by each nation. This whole idea of the euro is completely insane and let these price structures shake shake out and let this relative strength and weakness shake out and you say well for example the south of italy oh it's it's so terrible because you know wages are so low yeah wages wages are so low but you can also go get lunch for three bucks which is impossible anywhere north of there so what what having this common currency does is that it actually disincentivizes the entrance of um, investment, so on and so forth, into the areas with the lower wage structure. And then, I mean, you talk about the insanity of then imposing, going into something like southern Italy and say we're going to impose a 15 euro per hour minimum wage. This is the worst possible thing you could do. The strength that a um, a weak buying power type of economy has is the low wage, and that it is attractive. But at the same at the same time, if you have a healthy, normally structured economy, 
the wages are lower, but so are the prices for everything else. So it doesn't cost as much to live in the lower wage area. In fact, your standard of living standard of living can even be slightly higher than it would be. Look at talk to people who have ever had to had to live in London or anything like that, where you have a super strong, considered a relatively speaking, a super strong currency, the British pound, and a super strong economy. But how do people have to live? In London, rental prices are so high that, you know, grown adult people have to do things like like share one bedroom apartments because you can't even afford to have a one bedroom apartment. You have to have a roommate. And so somebody's in the bedroom and somebody's sleeping out on the couch or something like that. Whereas in these much, much weaker, quote unquote, weaker economies with less with less buying power and lower wages, you can you can go rent an entire house for one tenth of what it costs to rent a a one bedroom apartment somewhere like London. And, you know, obviously we can make all these comparisons as well in the United States proper. I was going to say New York, Silicon Valley, um, Chicago, San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Compare that to, uh, I don't know, South Dakota, Alabama. Yeah, I mean, from my old stomping grounds, stomping grounds in Kansas, go drive along I-70 and pick some random little, little teeny tiny town population 500 that's off that's on an exit off of I-70 in Kansas that you can see from the road and just go see what it would cost to rent a house, you know, a 50, 60, 70, 80 year old house probably two or three bedrooms in a little town out in the middle of Kansas. It would only be, I would say would be easily less than $500 a month, probably, probably three fifty or something like that. Well, yeah. I mean, you're not, you're not living in, in downtown San Francisco, but then again, you've, you've got, you know, all this disposable income now that you could work with, especially if you're a person who works online. Um, that's, that's really the interesting dynamic that comes into all of this too. So this kind of leads to, um, breaking up of, in fact, allowing for there to be multiple currencies and not having, and this kind of goes along with getting rid of the federal reserve and all of that is going back to where, each state or even individual banks as it, as it used to be back in the day, but maybe just going back down to, to individual states have their own currency and then let those currencies fight with each other. Oh, how, how glorious would that be? Um, you know, if you were, if you were trading Texas dollars against Illinois dollars, I mean, can you imagine the flight to quality of money out of the state of Illinois and into the state of Texas just be, just because of the spread in terms of political corruption would be just a glorious, glorious thing to behold. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that could go a long way um, towards making an economy sound and healthy again is getting rid of the the, the national currency and going back to fighting letting currencies fight it out with each other. Uh, but this is, this starts another conversation as, as we had at the top of the show about what are you going to do in terms of electronic transactions and so on and so forth. Um, 
And how are you how are you going to have conversion rates and so on and so forth? Well, I don't I don't know. I think maybe obviously we need pain. We need pain of some sort in order to get us back on the right track. And maybe something like that, even though it would be painful, um, it would be inconvenient in that sense, in the sense of inconvenience. Um, it might be something that could help get us back to economic soundness. Well, traditionally there was always the national currency and then there was gold. Yeah, certainly. And so, for example, to, you know, if every state had in the United States had its own currency, it, it'd be like it'd be like uh, Europe before the euro came into being. And for the few countries in, in the eurozone or in, in Europe-ish uh, that don't that, that aren't on the euro right now, for example, in the last two weeks, uh, the Turkish lira has been batted around like crazy. Mm-hmm. It, it would be a counterbalance to the local politicians getting squirrely with their policies. Exactly. If, if, if there's, they're going to do something a, stupid and bankrupt their entire country, they're going to be hanging from the end of a rope real quick. Exactly. Yep. And it, it's precisely because the dollar has strengthened. The dollar is strengthening tremendously relative to the euro because of Turkey. That's it's, you know, it made a new low for the move for the, I mean, and by low for the move, I'm talking years and years and years. Um, but, but in a case it's, like it's that, because of Turkey, yeah. I was going to say, in a case like that, it could just simply be that the Turkish, you know, politicians are saying something stupid and causing instability. That that you know, if they're saying we're going to start, you know, really seriously think about implementing these policies, well, the smart money is going to leave Turkey in a hurry, and that's going to cra- that that's going to crater their their currency really fast. That anybody who is thinking about in, investing in Turkey is going to take a flight to safety at that point. Yep, it's just it's just a this very good and effective feedback mechanism. And then, you know, the economic pain comes and the people look at their leaders and say, what in the hell are these idiots doing? And then change happens. Whereas if you've got this, this paradigm we have now in the U S and, and in the, the first world, let's call it where it seems to me that what's actually been, been implemented is a system to in fact dull all of those feedback loops so that the people in power are not held responsible and you know the people on the ground really don't feel um it's it's much more of a slow bleed a uh, you know a frog in the pot of boiling water sort of a dynamic that all of these feedback me- mechanisms have been put in place in order to divert any sort of a, a sense or feeling of responsibility from any of the people who are actually in power um so next on the list what what else well, was before, i talking about before um, we go to the, uh, to the next point I, I did want to go back to the minimum wage for a minute and obviously it makes a whole lot of sense in terms of competitiveness for the job market. But let's turn that around for a minute and address the concern of people who would say that, well, without a minimum wage, you're going to have uh, employers who are unscrupulous and uh, predatory toward their employees and locking them in and doing unjust things. How would you answer that point? Well, it goes back to having a Christian society or not. I mean, we can, we can talk about all of these things that we want, all day long, if the people in a given civilization are morally depraved, there's there's really not much you can do. So going back and quoting, I think it was John Adams, who was probably a Freemason, um, he said, you know, this this 
constitution, the system, this is made exclusively for a moral people. And if you take that morality away, then yeah, it's the whole thing's going to fall to pieces. And that's what we're, we're in the throes of that right now. But yeah, you're going to end up with things like China, where there is moral depravity, cultural moral depravity. And so, yeah, you end up with sweatshops and things like that. Um, it, it morality, you know, the saying morality can't be legislated, uh, you can't you can't convert the hearts of man, but the government should, of course, g- all governments should confess Jesus Christ as a sovereign king. All laws be subject to his law, first and foremost. And what you'll find out from the economic perspective is what that yields when you start from that true premise with a capital T, what what that will yield is is, in fact, economic health and cultural societal health um, in a way that you you simply cannot have if you have a non-confessional state and we see that in precisely in China, Soviet Union, I mean obviously North Korea, North Korea is just a complete basket case. but all of these let's talk about China and the old Soviet Union and Russia where you have big big economies, big economies. Um, that pride themselves being in this Marxist communist model of being atheistic, et cetera, et cetera. It just, it descends into complete corruption and yeah, sweatshops and massive underclasses of basically slaves. So again, you, you cannot have this conversation and there, there really, I don't think is any way given original sin and fallen man there is no way that human beings can get together and have a moral society without first confessing Jesus Christ as the king. And, uh, you know, the, the sooner people get their heads around this, the sooner we can turn it around. But then, of course, having said that and looking at the world as it is today, supernatural intervention is probably going to be required for that. But we can at least talk about it in terms of having this conversation. Right. And at the top of the episode, I, we, we made the, the scenario that I'm going to be the emperor of North America and I will be the head of the Christ the King party. And yes. uh, until until Christ is, is the king, we're, we're, we're not going to have peace. But getting back to the financial markets, we, we talked mm-hmm. about the minimum wage. Let's talk about uh, exchanges. Uh, you've made the comment before that uh, all the all, all all trading should be done by by uh, open outcry. Does that mean that I don't get to trade my four hundred one k or or uh, IRA on electronically on Schwab anymore? Um, well, you can or, there can be electronic order entry, but every financial transaction in a pit. No, it needs to be done in a pit by human beings. I think this is absolutely essential. You cannot have the computer algorithm execution of trades. You have to have all financial transactions, derivative stocks, all this stuff d- done by human beings. Now, you can you can input the order electronically and then it goes down and it prints out and it is handed to a broker the broker executes it with another human broker. You've got the fill that's handed back to a clerk who then enters it into the computer system and the fill is sent back to you electro- electronically. There's no problem with that. 
What I'm saying is, is that you have to have this break in place. You have to have this limitation of the markets can only move as fast and execute as fast as human beings can, can do this. This business of where we are now of having um, algorithms be far, far, far in excess of 90% of all of the volume, and it's 99.99999% of all of the bids and asks on all of these instruments that are being traded, it's not human beings anymore. There's hardly any actual human liquidity in the equities or in the derivative, deri- the exchange traded derivatives markets anymore. It's almost all computers fighting with each other in terms of micro, micro milliseconds, obviously. I'll, I'll go ahead and stipulate that anyone who posits that high frequency trading ought to be moral should be prisoned until they can be adjudicated properly. But taking the high frequency traders out of the equation, you really have to go through open human outcry first. You can't do electronic discovery. Why not just uh, follow the the model of decentralizing things and having a bunch of exchanges where certain things of more importance are done through human through human outcry and maybe things like my four hundred one k or or our IRA that I only deal with once a quarter. Let me just go ahead and put those orders in electronically and just they clear when they do. Or maybe I want them to happen right now because I'm seeing something in the news that I happen to know something about Microsoft and Apple and Intel, and I want to make this happen right now. Right. Great question. And my answer is because if you have that where you know Super Nerd has put stops on on all of his stock positions and so on and so forth. What then happens um, when you have the kind of massive volume that we are talking about is that the risk of having hyper, hyper volatility and and black swan, what what are called black swan events, um, just goes through the roof because you can't stop the computers. You can stop the people. And this is what used to happen up until just a few short years ago in the open outcry pits. There were um, price limits. The, the markets could only move X percentage up or down. There would be limit moves per day. And so that if if there was some grave emergency, and I, I can give you an example, a great example from my own career. Um, fairly early on, I don't know, I don't remember when it when it happened exactly, but it could have been more than three years into my career. We had, there was for the first time, a, a diagnosed case of mad cow disease in the United States. And this, this animal had come down from Canada and blah, blah, blah. But they, they, find, they found and diagnosed, um, I think it was a dairy animal, finally in the United States that had come from Canada and had mad cow disease. Okay, cattle markets immediately drop the, the limit for the day. And then what happens? everything stops and then we say okay we'll come back tomorrow and then we'll see if it's limit down again tomorrow but you see what this is doing it's it's allowing news to filter into the markets it's allowing in a sense for cooler heads to prevail everybody gets to sleep on this 
And if, if we still need, if it's still locked on the second day, then what we can do is we can say, okay, we have a pre-existing regimen for expanding the limits. So now we can expand the limit and we'll go to the next day. And if it's locked again, then we'll sleep on it overnight. And what this does is that it, um, it puts a break on things and prevents this massive, massive, massive volatility and price spiking and flash crash, you know, lose, lose 50% of value and then bam, bounce off of that and go screaming back up the other way, just raping everyone in its path, essentially knocking everyone out of the market. Um, these are, and it's the little guy always, you know, it's the little guy who, who isn't stand, who isn't there watching the screen, hovering over his computer. You know, he needs to have the chance to a know what's going on, B call his broker, be in contact, have some sort of a, a, a strategy going forward. You can't do that when you've got these algorithms running everything. And if we, we've seen it happen. It's now to the point where the algorithms are watching you know, Google and news feeds and all of this stuff, the, the algorithms are watching the internet, watching the news, looking for keywords. And if the algorithms identify, you know, some sort of keyword thing that indicates X, Y, Z, the algorithms are so sophisticated that they then start selling or buying or whatever, whatever the, whatever the, the consequence would be. I, I think we mentioned it on a previous show. There were, there was some chucklehead at NBC or MSNBC, probably MSNBC was, was doing something on their social media, uh, electronic media systems, the, the computer systems put out what they thought was a, a testing system tweet saying that there were gunshots fired at the white house and, um, mm-hmm. and, and, and paramilitary forces were called in and, and medical assistance and whatnot. This is during Obama's time. But just on the fact that that tweet went out on the live Twitter system as opposed to they thought they were testing, the market took an immediate dip as a result. Because, oh, absolutely, Because, yeah. because uh, violence at the White House, possible death of the president, that's instability. Start selling, yep. start making trades. Yep, exactly. I mean, it's stuff like that. And then it's also, um, again, from the early days of my career, when you have this human interaction and you have, you know, clerks and pit brokers, what this also prevents is either nefarious or completely innocent, mistaken order entries. And this, I mean, you know, as a, as a broker, you, it was just understood that every so many hundred, um, orders that you entered that you would make some sort of an error. Um, and there were a certain kind of errors called fat finger errors, meaning that when, if you were typing in an order on a keypad, um, that you would put an extra zero on something, you know, so instead of quantity 10, it would be quantity a hundred. So for example, back in the day when it was all open outcry, whether let's, let's assume first, um, trying to be nefarious. I, I call in or some psychopath kid let's let's, because this has happened. Some psychopath kid gets hired by Goldman Sachs, let's say, and he's, he's paid to be trading house money. And so 
he's he's a psychopath and he has no risk uh, internal risk breaks at all so this is uh, john corzine was often described as being exactly this no internal break no internal r- risk uh risk management would just do absolutely insane things so insane kid calls down to my business was cattle so let's say cattle calls down to the cattle pit and tries to put in an order to sell 500 contracts of December live cattle. Okay, he even attempts to do that. The clerk is probably going to say, nope, I need to call the desk manager, get the desk manager over here. Desk manager comes over and says, what in the hell are you doing? Who is this account? Is it even remotely margined for this? You, you can't put an order in of that quantity that big. You are going to absolutely destroy. You, so, so you see there's all these breaking mechanisms. And then what would happen in terms of me not being a, a nefarious person, I would occasionally make some sort of an error. And many times it happened over the 15 course of 15 years of my career that I would put in some order over the phone, la-di-da-di-da, and then sure enough, 45 seconds later, the phone would ring and it would be the floor and they would be saying, you just put an order to do X, Y, Z. Are, are you sure? Are you sure it's that quantity or are you sure it's that month or whatever it is? Um, and oftentimes these, these errors like this would actually be in the context of spreads and oftentimes option spreads that the floor would, would catch errors that people were making. Um, so fat finger errors, for example, if you were, if you were inputting an order online and you, you entered something as a hundred rather than 10, oh, you would, you would get a phone call. You would get a phone call if you were not some sort of a big, huge office that was handling massive, massive orders like that. For someone like me, if I, if I ever tried to put in a hundred, a hundred lot order, eyeballs would be looking at that and there would be, you know, all kinds of confirmation. And over the course of my career, I think it was only, it was only a handful of times that I put in hundred lot orders ever on anything. Um, and you know, it would always be, yes, yes, this is client so-and-so and yes, yes, the margin money's there. A desk manager would often ask, is, is the margin money there? And yes, yet the, the wire came in this morning, blah, blah, blah. We're doing this. We're selling a hundred loads of December cattle for this and such feedlot. So there's all these breaking mechanisms that are there that just simply doesn't exist when you've got these algorithms fighting with each other. Um, okay, you put so, in, so the techie side of me has to ask, is there no mechanism in place if you've got a tip about something or a hunch that you're willing to bet the house on that you can't call the, the um, put in an order and say, I know you're going to look at this and say it's strange, but just sue do, do it anyway, which you Linux nerds got that. But in other words, saying this is going to look like something that that is, you know, an accident. I'm doing it very much on purpose. Here's I'm backstopping mm-hmm. it with my account. Is there some mm-hmm. kind of magic word you can throw in there and say, no, really do this. I mean it. Do it right now and don't question it. And here's my password or whatever. I mean, that's it's just what I just described. You're having you're having a telephone conversation with someone. And you're saying this account is so and so, and the margin money's there. 
And it was not too terribly long into my career before, you know, the, the floor could actually pull up an account and make sure or get a phone call from the margin department and, and just instantaneously, I mean, instantaneously, not in obviously in algorithm terms, but in human terms, instantaneously call a margin desk and say, does account one, two, three, four, five have you know, the, the million dollars in available cash to margin this position and get a yes or no. But it's all this system of protection and backstop maintaining the integrity of the market so that you can be assured that you're not going to have psychos, nefarious actors, or people just making honest mistakes that completely derail, destroy, and pump all of this absolutely terrible volatility, bad synthetic volatility into a market that can have cascading consequences that could start running stop losses and make and, you know, turn into a cascading event. That's the thing. If you put in an order, one order that's big enough in these markets, you can drive the market down in the short term sufficiently that you start, as we were talking about, tripping the stop losses that people like you have put in place. Okay, now all these stops are being run and then stops when it's supposed to be that when a market hits a stop level, that that stop order is a market order. So it's going to get executed and that's going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. I mean, we want there to be liquidity and we want people to be able to get in and out of the markets, but we don't want this wild, wild synthetic volatility that doesn't really doesn't do anything but hurt almost everyone. It lowers confidence in the markets. Um, and it's the human, it's the human factor that goes a long way towards solving a lot of that. Um, and I just think I look at what's happened over the last 15 years in the markets and you just think to yourself, the only good that's come out of this is that the exchanges and the brokerage houses are making a killing off of the commissions and off of the fees that have come from this churn, this churning, churning, churning of the markets. And churning in, in technically means it, it's a financial term, it, and it just means volume for volume's sake. Turning you know, getting all positions in, for the sake of uh, collecting um collecting uh, consignments on it. Yeah, just just turning over positions mindlessly in, out, back, forth. That's what the algorithms do. And that's why the exchanges, and a, a lot of people don't know this. Here's another thing that we can talk about. All the exchanges about 15 years ago went private. They went private for profit. They used to be nonprofit entities everything started to go to hell in a handbasket when they when they went to um to private for profit believe it or not because now the priority was get as much you know exchange fees and commission income which means get as much churning as much trading as possible which means you're going to favor the big corrupt houses like Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and all of that, you're going to, you're first of all, you're going to favor all of that. And then you're absolutely going to favor having the, the, com the computer algorithms just churning and churning and churning the markets in and out because you're making a killing off of the exchange fees. And the other thing it did 
which I kind of was one of the people to expose at the very end, is these brokerage houses had, and this this just blew my mind when I discovered it, they were allowing um, central banks to trade on the exchanges. So you could pull up the margin list, the margin requirement list, off of the Chicago Board of Trade or the Chicago Mercantile or the New York Board of Trade's website. And there were there were three categories for margin requirements. There were bona fide hedgers, there were speculators, and then there was a separate category for central banks. Okay, this, this is abject insanity. You have entities like the Federal Reserve Bank or the central, you know, the central bank of Europe or whatever it is, any central bank trading in these derivative mar- derivatives markets on currencies, on equities, on, you know, bonds and so on and so forth. A central bank by definition is a bank which can print money. It can print its own currency. It is the head of its own currency. That means that you have speculators and bona fide hedgers who are going up against, I mean, and in in particular, this applies to bona fide hedgers, people who have the actual commodity. You have them in the marketplace trying to go up against people for whom no margin call is too big because they can just print their own money in order, they can print money in order to service their margin call. So you're going up against someone in the market who has an basically, for all intents and purposes, an inexhaustible supply of money. So there's absolutely no feedback mechanism in the marketplace itself when these central banks are playing in them because they can allow a market to go completely out of whack. There's no delivery uh, mechanism, meaning arbitrage. If, if, a, if a market gets too high, for example, then you, if you have the physical commodity or the actual commodity, if the market is way out of whack too high, then you deliver on that contract. You get too much, you know, you get paid too much. Um, these, these things just don't exist when a central bank can be in there because the central bank could just keep feeding the margin call, feeding the margin call and doesn't care and is never going to, is never going to unwind out of a position as a market, um, moves against, against them. They can stand basically inexhaustible amounts of loss on a position. This completely defeats the purpose of the entire paradigm. So going back to the original question of if I'm willing to, you know, I I discovered some piece of information that's to my advantage and I've got 12 seconds to act on it and I'm willing to take seven, eight, nine figures worth of liability if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty certain I'm not. You're saying it would be better for the overall system to say you can't put it through that fast because Otherwise, you're allowing too much volatility in the system and just, you know, take the profits that are reasonable. Yeah. The, what about everyone else? What about everyone else? No, if you were volume- I went out and busted my hump and got the information that nobody else was willing to do. Why can't I do that when I, with a 12, in a 12-second window? Well, the other thing is, is that a lot of these things are based upon rumor and emotion. Like, for example, the mad cow thing. The mad cow thing, you know, the the emotion 
was absolutely ridiculous. It's this is the end of the North American cattle industry. No one is ever going to eat beef ever again. Oh, just cook it at 147 degrees for 48 hours. It's fine. Nah, no, that doesn't do it. That doesn't do it, unfortunately, with mad cow. Um, prions survive heat. So there's this emotional response. No one is ever going to eat beef again. Now, common sense. Is, is that true? Is that accurate? Or is that a completely emotional panic response? Well, clearly, obviously, it's a completely emotional panic response. But do we do we allow that kind of emotional panic response or an algorithm driven response to something like that to completely destroy the lives and livelihood of of a cattle producer who is out processing cattle in the barn and therefore cannot by definition be standing there hovering over the market with his finger hovering over a mouse waiting to click the button that liquidates his entire position. This is, this is a completely unacceptable and unhealthy paradigm. And you have to have this, this breaking mechanism and that's why the exchanges had price limits in the first place. Okay, so the, so reasonable steps per day. You can't you can't um, make a, a career home run in, in twelve seconds. And um, if you don't like that, then just spend more more time in the market uh, achieving your your dream. Well, yeah, and I mean, and there there is a difference between um, you know the cattleman who's outside working every day. And the guy who buys a seat on the exchange and literally stands in the pit. I mean, these are two different men with two different careers. And the the needs or the the potential benefit to the guy who's standing in the pit or the guy who's sitting at his computer terminal with his finger hovering over the the click button on his mouse to do these trading, to do this trading. His his ability to make a speculative profit should not be given this massive moral priority over the the guy who wants just the cattleman who wants to use these forward delivery markets in order to manage the risk on his cattle and have forward delivery contracts on his cattle. You can't prioritize the guy in the pit morally um, because he he somehow has some God given right to make a, a career career grand slam speculative trade. Um, no, that you don't have that that moral superiority, that that precedence over everyone else. There need we need to have these breaks and these blocks in place. Well, and in that, fact, that, if anything, you should morally prioritize the guy who's the actual producer, who's actually producing food over the speculator. He should have the moral priority if you're going to give anyone a moral priority. I'm not going to argue with that. We are an hour and 28 minutes in, and we have not even gotten to tariffs, the income tax, uh, insurance, property taxes, mortgages <laughs> of seven years, car loans to 18 months, uh, banks marking to market every day, um, banks uh, posting bank owner equity for every dollar or against uh, unsecured loans. We can almost do part two. You think? Yeah, I think we could do part 12. <laughs> All Although right, well, a lot of these, this one. A lot of these topics we have covered before. I mean, the, the idea of insurance, I, we, well, at least on the health side, we've covered that before. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if we've covered mark to market before. 
Um, property taxes. I, you know what? We've got enough here for for a part two. And and uh, oh yeah, for all y'all who have, who have noticed anything we're not covering yet that uh, you want to see covered in a, a a part two of this. And again, this was the the, the theme here was. Anne is going to be appointed uh, my financial czarina to just fix everything because I'm not into finance. I'm going to go fix the computer world as emperor or whatever mm-hmm. it is I'm doing. And and um, Anne's going to fix the financial world. So if you have more questions on this point, uh, by all means, send them into the podcast. Um, and that kind of gets us into the wrap up. Uh, the Barnhart podcast is a production of Super Nerd Media. I'm doing this all out of order. Uh, I need more sleep. Okay. The email address <laughs> of the podcast, if you want to send feedback, comments, suggestions, is podcast at barnhart.biz. However, if you're going to send in emails for uh, for the Ask Ann Anything series, send those into email at supernerdmedia.com, and I will handle those. That works best because Ann doesn't know the, the questions in advance, and that way there's an element of surprise, and that's kind of fun. Yeah. Um, masses for Ann's benefactors. If you are hearing this podcast... There was a mass said for all the benefactors today. It doesn't matter what day of the week it is. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. And also once a week, there's a mass said for everyone who died in the last week. And, you know, honestly, I can't think of any other, you know, I can't think of a better send off than to have a mass said for me. Um, if you are, if you have the ability uh, for loved ones and friends, uh, have the 30-day Gregorian masses said. Um, that's not what Anne's got set up. It's just one, once a week for everyone who's, de- who's departed in the last week. But uh, if you have questions about that, email the podcast and we'll send you more information about that. But the point is that uh, masses are being said every day for all the benefactors, once a week for everyone who departed, um, eternally that is. And, you know, remember the priests. The, these are people mm. who are, they're humans like all the rest of us. They need to go, go to confession. They're going to have a strenuous uh, judgment before God because priests are going to be, they have to answer not just for themselves, but for everyone who they've advised and who they didn't, didn't advise. Um, they've got ferocious uh, judgments ahead of them. Uh, pray for them now. And, and, and especially I want to throw in um, news within the last 24, 36 hours or so is that a actually a Byzantine Catholic priest, I think he was maybe in Indiana or somewhere like that, Sure enough, someone physically attacked, strangled him, beat his head against the ground, knocked him unconscious, and the the person who did this was screaming, "This is for the kids! This is for the kids!" So it's all. I mean, in a certain sense, um, Orthodox faithful Catholics are really, really happy that all of this um, homosexual infiltration of the priesthood and the episcopacy is coming to light. But please don't forget that the good priests out there are going to be, by the mainstream culture, tarred with the same brush and will be attacked. I mean, this attack that just happened within the last 24 hours, this is just the very, very, very beginning. So it's especially it's especially important right now that as we are purging out all of these infiltrators that we have to double our prayers for the good priests who are going to get caught up in it, who are going to be attacked in it, who are, and th- this has already been the case in in um, Western culture, that there is now and has been for quite some time now, kind of the unspoken presumption that Catholic priests are homosexual and therefore are 
predators of of especially teenage boys that that assumption now has kind of silently slipped in now it's going to come out into the open where the leftists and those who hate jesus christ and his holy church who obviously hate the priesthood are now going to use all this as an excuse to even physically attack priests so please please redouble quadruple octuple your prayers that you're that you're making for are good priests. And yes, there are a few. The infiltration is massive, but there are a few priests who are good, heterosexual, completely normal men who love God, his holy church, and are trying to feed the flock as best they can. And they are going to be persecuted. And the devil is going to use this to persecute them even physically. And it's already started. So please pray for them. I think I chatted with you about this very topic just a few days ago that uh, what about the traditional priests who who they always wear their clericals or their cassock? Yeah. I can only imagine that they're going to be physically attacked before too much longer. I you know, I'm not I can't say I'm surprised that somebody was killed over this. And in terms of, you know, the diabolic cleverness of stacking mm. the chessboard this way. Yep. Yeah, you know, I'm made the comment to you this this last week that, you know, when they, in, in quotes, come to kill me, I hope it's because I'm a Catholic and I've been exposing the faith, not because I pissed somebody off because I annoyed them, you know, about, yeah. you know, their politics. The, yeah. latter, the latter is not martyrdom. Standing up for the faith is martyrdom. Exactly. And, yep. yeah, Satan's stacking the board to the point that this isn't about the faith when people get killed. Yep. Yep, he's one hell of a chess player. I've been saying that for years, and and it's all playing out. And we're not and, e- we're not even at the end game yet. This is the thing oh that no. kind of is. I, I hesitate to use the term depressing, but I, you know, I, I made the comment that it's I'm, that I thought you know it may get to the point where priests are going to get physically attacked or even killed, mm-hmm. and this has nothing to do to do with the faith. Yeah. So exactly. good priests who are doing good work, helping people save their souls, are going to get killed and they're not even going to be martyrs out of it. I mean, it, it yeah. sounds weird to put it that way and to be mm-hmm. upset about it. Yeah. But but it's not, how it's all playing not out. Good times. So Yep. But when you've got a disorientation from the top, I mean, what do you expect? I mean, Matthew 17:20 initiative, we've got a cluster fill in the blank all the people in the military. We've got it from the top. We're church militant. We can use military terms. It's yes. a mess at the top, and prayer and fasting is the only way to get this solved. A full yes. fasting twice a week is the recommendation. Mm-hmm. And does Tuesdays and Fridays. Y'all do whatever you think is, is right. Just don't do it on Sunday or holy yep. days because you don't fast on, on, on holy days and Sundays. That's a different kind of disorder. Yes. And um, this was a fun podcast until about three minutes ago. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we, we have to say something. It's, a, it's like it's just pretty much obligatory. You can't broach into these concepts of priests offering the holy sacrifice and not make some sort of at least tiny comment about what's going on. And we're probably going to have to do so. This is a financial episode. Probably before the end of this week, we're going to have to do another churchy episode because there's so much happening. Um, and people, people, I think it. I, I think I said this in the last podcast. It's good for people to hear conversation about this and realize that you're not alone and this is happening and we can work through this and we can parse through this and and here's the good here's the bad let's keep on track you know keep your chin up keep the faith obviously and um we'll keep uh we'll keep talking about this stuff 
and th- there was something I saw on Father Z's blog, and of course you put the smackdown on him on, on a different topic um, on, on one of your blog posts this last week, but he did make the comment that we, we need we need to be prepared for the church to go underground. And, you know, for the average Catholic out there, that means maybe, you know, buying the necessary things and having on hand for the underground priest uh, to be able to say mass at your house, whether it's, you know, having a stash of wine and uh, unconsecrated hosts and the necessary things to be able to have a, a valid mass. Mm-hmm. Um, these are legitimate things to think about and be ready for. Portable um, altars. Um, Saint, I think it's called St. Saint Joseph, Saint Joseph's Workshop. They make and sell absolutely outstanding portable altars. And I think that's something that, um, yeah, a responsible household at this point, you know, especially if you're one of the one of the families in your parish, especially that's kind of the leadership families. You know what I'm talking about? You know, there's in every parish, there's a there's a group of 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 families that kind of take the leadership position. And I think that leadership type families and people of financial means, even a, a single person who has the financial means, should go ahead and invest and buy a portable altar and just have it ready to go. And or if you have the skills to build it, I mean, my, my particular yeah. skill is communication. So whether it's uh, putting together podcasts and, and uh, DR plans for if Anne's when Anne's, when, uh, yeah. Anne's website gets pulled again to do, oh, cool, it's back up. Uh, y- y- y'all didn't know it was going to be up that fast. And uh, yeah, I've got a few ideas up my, up my sleeve about that one. Um, and, by the way, thank you very much to, um, I don't want to say his name yet, <laughs> somebody who's mm, helping mm. me with setting up the the email system and, and giving me some other ideas here. Um, I, and by the way, uh, the Barnhart podcast I mentioned is a production of Superdome Media. If you found something of value in this or previous episodes and would like to return some value, please visit supernerdmedia.com, which is what PMJ, JPF, EMP, JR, it's, it's a, oh, the whole alphabet soup today. Uh, mm-hmm. Charles, Marianne, Susan, and Erica, definitely going the distance. Thank you very much for, for your support and um, getting these... Um, shall we say, make it difficult to make Anne's go, Anne's website go away plans. They're, they're, they're about to go in place or about to go into effect in a way that's going to be a little more uh, resilient than it has been in the past. Cool. Yeah. Thanks guys. And thanks to all of my benefactors, because as always a reminder, super nerd and I are completely separate financial entities. I don't mix my money with anyone uh, for obvious reasons. And so my little initiative that I've been doing is called (laughs) the Big Mac Maneuver, now available with your choice of horse meat ground in. In fact, I was thinking about the little thing that we talked about. You said there's a podcast and they say, um, if you, if you want you know, they tie the donation amount, like the number of cents that you make in your donation to some sort of a topic that they have on the show. And I was thinking that for, for, um, to, for the rest of the year, um, whatever amount that you subscribe to, um, whatever the last two digits, the cents. So if you like subscribed for $7 and 22 cents per month, um, that means that you want 22% horse meat blend blended into your stale Big Macs, which I can totally, totally do. I well, can deliver horse meat Big Macs in any percentage that you want. So uh, well, that'll, that, be, our, on, that'll on, be our little joke. On that podcast, they typically had uh, fixed amounts meaning something. So if you ended your your uh, amount in, in uh, 73 cents, that was supposed to be a tip off to everyone that you're an amateur radio operator calling 73 to everybody. 
Ah, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, we'll do the percentage horse meat blend for the next few weeks and see how it goes. But, um, that's what the big Mac maneuver, the stale big Mac maneuver is under council. I was told that I should try to develop a broader subscriber base to the podcast. And so that's what that's about. All benefactors of all shapes, sizes, quantities, denominations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. And until next time, when we're doing part two or who knows what, um, there, there are lots of uh, Ask Ann episodes still coming, and uh, we're going to probably put some more of those in the can this week. And uh, we have no idea what <laughs> – I was confused enough at the top of this show what number this one was. The, these other ones we're going to do in advance, I will have no idea what, what number they are. So uh, until next time, I am Super Nerd. And I'm Ann. Thanks, guys. God bless. God bless.